Well, this marks another first for Archie Guy's channel. Just uh, a couple months ago, I did a rumination on my very first movie. And not that long after, I did my very first rumination on a book. So now this, this is something a little bit different. <clears throat> There's no two ways about it. This is a fan film. It has a lot more backing and prestige than most fan films do, but it is still a fan film, and it does show in many ways. But I want to kind of talk about why Of Gods and Men is a little bit unique. Uh, before I begin anything, let me just say, if you have any interest at all in Star Trek, honestly, go watch it. Just right now. It's about an hour and a half, a little less than that. It's like hour 20, something like that. And it has its flaws. It does. I'm not going to deny that. I'll be discussing these flaws uh, throughout the course of this, this rumination. But it is some good stuff. And the best praise I could give it is it showed promise and I wanted to see more. Now, I'll be talking about what that means later. But suffice it to say that it does get a genuine recommendation from me. So, go watch it. Um, I'm not going to be holding back on anything spoilery-wise or anything like that with regards to this video. So, be warned. Okay. This is a topic I've been wanting to broach for a while, and I always did, was... I, some of my fans may not realize how much I plan uh, which videos come out and when and how. I have a list of what to ruminate on. That's basically determined by you guys, uh, mostly my patrons, but also my viewers in general. But I also look at that list and say, okay, how can I stagger that to make that work? And I've always wanted to put Star Trek of Gods and Men off, even though it's been requested for quite some time. And I hope this specific gentleman who requested it is very happy to see me finally look at it. Or at the very least, partially happy. Or maybe blisteringly angry. I'm not sure. One of the things. But the point being, I wanted to put it off because, drumroll please, Star Trek Renegades is actually supposed to come out pretty soon, all things considered. In all honesty, I actually wanted to put this off even longer. And the intent was to put it off longer. But basically, that would mean putting off uh, either three more months or longer than that and I didn't want to overshoot my mark and I, I've kind of been sitting on this rumination for a while so I wanted to just go ahead and, and jump into it. That being said if you're watching this um, and, I, and I say this weird because I don't actually know exactly what's going to happen next with my schedule because I'm still relying on a couple of outside uh, circumstances because when I'm recording this this is actually January and well, let's just say my real-life situation is the worst it's been in my entire life. So, right now, uh, I'm trying to get as many videos as I've recorded as I can, just in case. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why all of February is already done, and, you know, so forth and so on, and I'm already working on March videos. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off-topic. The point I'm trying to reach here is that hopefully, when you watch this, next week... I'll start doing something that's also been requested, and something that I wanted to do several years ago, and was basically bullied into not doing, because several people rather derogatorily told me that I was just a pathetic aping of another uh, Star Trek sci science fiction rumination show called Sci-Fi Debris. Let me make this clear. Uh, that hurt like crazy, and still kind of stings a little bit, but... As has been stated many times, I'm not really an aping of Sci-Fi Debris. His approach is very different than mine, and... I don't want to, like, 
be in competition with him. Quite the contrary. I actually encourage my viewers to go look at Sci-Fi Debris and, and see what he does and see if you like his stuff because I think he's a pretty good guy as far as what he does in his show. I watch his show. It, not as much as I used to, admittedly. I don't have a lot of spare time to just watch stuff that's not for my show. Um, but point being, I was going to go ahead and look at all the Star Trek movies. Star Trek 1 through 13. I'll talk about that uh, at some point in time. You'll see where I'm going with that. Trust me. But anyways, so I was going to go through all the Star Trek movies, and I wanted to stagger this one because Renegades is coming out soon, and I wanted this to precede all the Star Trek movies and looking at them. I felt it would be a nice way to, to collaborate those things together. For those of you who don't know, Renegades is the second movie thing being produced by the same people who produced Of, of Gods and Men, which is the thing I'm looking at today. Renegades has potential. It's been worked on for years, plural, at this point. It was a Kickstarter thing that was well-backed, and then they had to go back and actually ask for more funding in order to use in the, in the post, post-processing effects, special effects, that kind of thing, which they then got that Kickstarter backed, and the net result of that is we're not sure what's going to happen yet. So far, CBS has had no problem allowing people to do fan films about Star Trek, as long as they met certain stipulations. Of Gods and Men is a good example of that. But the people behind Renegade want to make it into a show. So there's three possible outcomes for Renegade. CBS says, screw you, we're CBS, and we're evil incarnate. Uh, so, and, and that is actually quite possible, in all honesty. In which case, Renegades will be produced as a standalone movie, basically just like uh, Of Gods and Men was. Second option, CBS says, okay... We'll let you do your little series off to the side as long as you have nothing to do with us ever. And in which case, they're going to go ahead and try for a little bit of a series on, on the internet. Third and least likely option, CBS actually bankrolls it as a new Star Trek show. For those of you who are fans of Star Trek, and indeed for those of you who have watched any of my things at all, especially my Voyager Ruminations, you know that I spit venom at CBS on a very regular basis. For a lot of good reasons. Uh, they have basically been sitting on the rights to the Star Trek... Sh uh, they, they have rights to Star Trek as a television franchise, whereas Paramount and a couple dozen other companies, it's weird the way it works, um, had rights to movie where it works, and some other companies had rights to game works, and some other companies had rights to uh, comic book works. It's been all over the place. But the point being, in order for there to be a new Star Trek show, one of two things had to happen. CBS had to approve it and bankroll it, and therefore own it, or CBS had to give up those rights. Well, like I said, they've been squatting on those rights for a long time. Years and years and years. We're talking since basically 2002, I believe. So at this point, we're over the decade range. And they've already shot down two major attempts to start a new, uh, new television series. And a lot of other really well-competent and designed... Um, attempts. I, I, I say that in a weird way because there's the major attempts which were done we, you know, with backing of, of regular people who are in television who are already a part of you know, the, the network, so to speak. And then there were a lot of attempts by people who were not a part of the network but nevertheless put a lot of work and effort into putting together a real proposal rather than just saying, you should do a new Star Trek, you know, something like that. All of those have been shut down. It is very likely Renegades will be shut down as well, but I encourage anybody who's interested to go ahead and uh, keep an eye on the Renegade situation. Uh, they are approaching CBS, I believe, in March of this year, which may be when you're seeing this video. I'm not sure. Maybe this is already old news by the time you watch this. Forgive me for the info dump, but I wanted to get all of this out of the way because it all helps to emphasize my biggest point about Of Gods and Men, and it's not actually anything in character so much as out of character. 
I've been a Star Trek fan as long as I can remember. Well, not quite as long as I remember. I remember the very first thing I ever saw for the original series. I don't remember the name of the episode. It was the one where they go down to the planet and whatever they see happens and they had to, uh, you know, Spock had to do the mind meld with them in order to calm them so that they wouldn't be hurt by the bullets, that kind of a thing. You know the episode, right? I could go look it up. But that was the first episode of Star Trek I ever saw. Kind of freaky. But uh, Mum, my mother, the woman who raised me, was very, very into Star Trek and basically got me into Star Trek as well. I've been a Star Trek fan for a huge period of time, basically all my life. And one of the most interesting things I've found about that is, I can say that about several things. I've been a Star Wars fan for most of my life. I've been a Doctor Who fan for most of my life. I've been a video game fan, Mega Man, Mario, you know, Final Fantasy. I've been at ground floor of a lot of things. And yet, of all of those things, Star Trek always had just a tiny bit of flavor to it that makes it unique. Now, I have seen bad Star Trek fans, because there are fanboys and hate boys of everything, right? However, as much as people shriek at the concept, the, the overused, cliched, incorrect uh, portrayal of Star Trek fans as being this terrible person, I'm just going to say it like that. I don't even feel like going into the cliches because it's not worth my time. You know what I'm talking about. You know, the kind of a person. The get a life concept. You know, all those times you see someone fling venom at someone for being, oh, you're just a nerd, or you're just into Star Trek, or you're just some kind of loser. Get a life, right? I have encountered a few fans who probably do deserve that label. Only a couple. The other 99.99% of the fans I've met have been awesome people who love to share in enthusiasm. There's a reason the original series was salvaged by fan outcry. There's a reason that Star Trek the motion picture, and well, the Star Trek movie franchise was doing successfully enough in order to launch a new series. There's a reason that, despite the fact that there were significant issues with Deep Space Mind and Voyager, both of them got a full seven seasons. All of this, really, has to do with fans. We helped keep Star Trek going. The only thing we couldn't salvage was Nemesis. Because we hated it. Everyone hated Nemesis. And it was a shame, because Enterprise had finally gotten its legs, and we actually had a good Star Trek show again, but it's like, nope. You can also blame that one on CBS, by the way. Although Rick Berman really is the one who pulled the trigger. <sighs> but I'm getting again off topic. The point is, the Star Trek fandom has always been pretty awesome. And it all boils down to that same idea. I've said this before and I've said this again. Geeks are social creatures. Now, I know that sounds redundant because humans are social creatures. We really are. The human being is one of the most social creatures... Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. The most social creature that we know that exists. And... Everything that is about us really hinges on that social interaction. We like sharing things. We like discussing. We like talking. Sometimes that leads to arguments. Sometimes that leads to agreements. But regardless of how it works out, there is something to be said about being in a room with 2,000 other people who all love the same thing you do. And even if you disagree on the details, you can both reach this consensus that, yeah, Star Trek's awesome. And I love that. That's honestly one of the things that has kept me a Star Trek fan for so long. I still remember my very first Star Trek convention. This was in the 80s. Anaheim, California. It was a simple affair. They were setting up a few things. Next Generation had basically just gotten it going. Uh, Star Trek Four had just come out. And I had to think about that for a moment. 
because I was remembering where I lived at the time, San Francisco, for anybody curious. Well, just outside San Francisco. Anyways, uh, Alameda? Was that where I lived? Anyways, point, I'm getting off topic. First convention, Anaheim, California. I was so psyched, and they had models, and they had people there in costume, and everyone was just so happy to be there, and Shatner was there, and, and Nimoy was there, and... Uh, Oh, it was so great. There was so much stuff there. It was not, it was not the first, or excuse me, it was not the last convention I went to. Unfortunately, I, most of the other conventions I went to didn't actually have that much in the way of, you know, star power or whatever. I did end up meeting Brent Spiner, though, which is pretty cool. And I did actually end up meeting uh, Nimoy again later as he was pitching to us the idea of Deep Space Nine back when it was still a brand new idea. I'm getting a little off topic, but I really want to stress this point, so forgive me for speaking from the heart. That's something I've always tried to do. I've never tried to market myself as something who can, who can, you could put a minute and a half video out there and everyone with low attention spans can just watch it and digest it and move on. That's not me, and that's not my style, and yes, I've had this argument recently, which is why this is in the forefront of my mind. What I'm talking to you now is my genuine enthusiasm for the fan base of Star Trek. Not even uh, for Star Trek, but for the fan base of Star Trek. You guys, the people who are watching this right now, because I guarantee you half my viewers are going to look at this and say, oh, it's Star Trek. And there's nothing wrong with that. They don't need to watch this video. They don't need to be interested in the same things I am. But I like the fact that there are so many people who can share in that enthusiasm. What good is joy if you can't share it? And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that. However, there's a final thing. I mentioned that flavor. There is one thing that's kind of unique about Star Trek, and at least in my experience, I can't think of any other thing that has really had this same flavor to it as Star Trek has. Everything else, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag, but in Star Trek, with the exception of a few issues back in the older days, you know, back before most of you guys were probably born, uh, mostly related to Leonard Nimoy, the Star Trek, the people who make Star Trek are just as enthusiastic about it. Mostly the actors, but a lot of the directors, a lot of the composers, a lot of the writers as well. There's a reason why uh, Brennan Braga and, um, not Michael Pillar, the other gentleman. I can't think of his name. Oh, I can't think of his name. He's, he's an awesome guy. He did Battlestar Galactica. Anyways, those two people have said if they ever had the chance to come back and write for Star Trek again, they'd take it in a heartbeat. There's a reason why so many Star Trek cast members have have jumped at the opportunity to perform in Star Trek works again in the games or in the fan works this one is not a big exception now granted of gods and men is probably it was probably the first really big Star Trek fan film really i mean yes there were others before this i'm not going to talk about all those here but this one got a lot of attention because so many of the Star Trek alumni were saying, yeah, I'd totally be in part of that. Garrett Wong was, was right up there up front. Tim Russ was right up there up front. Uh, Chase Masterson was excited to get back into Star Trek, you know. Uh, Walter Koenig, which is, by the way, it's funny because Walter Koenig is another one of those guys who hated Star Trek early on. Uh, and then that, that attitude just kind of shifted over time, you know, similar to what happened with Nimoy. In all honesty, they were actually trying to get even more of the alumni in, and just scheduling issues was basically the problem there. I just mention that because it's one of the reasons why Star Trek is so great. Yes, we make it great, but they make it great too, if that makes any sense. They are just as... In, for the most part, most of the people who worked on Star Trek are just as enthusiastic about continuing to express that enjoyment in the franchise as we are. That's why Star Trek has endured so long, in my opinion. 
Yes, I know the same thing could be said of a few other things. Doctor Who, excuse me. Mm, mm, that's up in my nose there. But it's true. And Of Gods and Men is probably the single most shining example of that I've ever seen. Because as I started watching this, I admit it was a little hard to watch. I, this is not my first time watching it, for reference. It was a little hard rewatching it, though, because speaking as someone who has worked as a director, a cameraman, an actor, a writer, a sound guy, an editor, <laughs> you know, basically everything involved in producing television, um, it was really obvious all the cracks and flaws in the work. But what kept me watching it was the was the honest camaraderie and enthusiasm the actors were showing. Even though the lines were a little on the cliche side and a little kind of hackney, especially at times. There's one scene, which just kind of makes me roll my eyes every time I see it, when Uhura and, um, and, and Chekhov both give some really clunky exposition. Just out of nowhere, I might add. It's like, okay, you know, it's just, there are some lines that are badly written. I'm not going to try and defend this more than it deserves. And yet, the presentation of the characters is done well enough, and they're believable enough, and that you can tell that they're actually trying, and caring enough to try. And there's some really good chemistry, especially amongst the alumni, but also amongst, you know, the, the interaction between the various uh, cast members, that it works. Despite its many flaws, it does actually work. And by the end of it, I was just totally into it. I wanted to see what happened next. And again, I'm pretty excited for Renegades. Now, <sighs> um, let's go ahead and talk about some off-the-camera stuff here first, because I, I've got a whole list of stuff like that. The special effects, now you, you're probably going to say, oh, Arsh, okay, you, you're bashing the effects. Don't, don't even talk about the effects of, of a fan-made film. I know what you're going to say, and I know you, what you think I'm going to say, but actually the, the special effects for this film are astonishingly good for a fan film. I'm not going to oversell it. It is obviously fan-made stuff, but effort was obviously made to make it as good as possible. And one of the ways they did that was animation and lighting. Now, this sounds weird. Anybody of you who has worked in graphics design, though, probably can already see where I'm going with this. Making something look good texture-wise, uh, appearance-wise, mapping-wise, is one of the hardest things to do in graphics design. One of the ways that people get around that is they make something that has a style to it, you know, that is stylized. Uh, the Clone Wars is actually a great example of the Star Wars Clone Wars series. Those obviously are not realistic looking, but they weren't trying to be. Instead, they went out of their way to really polish the animation so that it felt believable. And a good animation and good lighting can really help sell something when the actual graphics quality cannot. And they did really, really good stuff with the animation. I also want to give extra special props to the space battle, which goes across several scenes and A, includes tons of subtle little nods for the fans. My favorite was the sphere ship. B, um, I can't even remember the name of the sphere ship, but you know what I'm talking about if you've seen this. Uh, B, included actual application of real tactics. I shouldn't say real tactics, but you know, the kind of tactics that you think would happen in Star Trek that normally you don't even see in Star Trek. Normally it's just Attack pattern alpha, fire all weapons, target their blah. And that's about as far as you see with regards to tactics in Star Trek. Yes, there are exceptions. But the point is, they actually did interesting stuff with, with the, the kind of things you can do in space and using these kind of spaceships uh, in, a, in a dogfight like that. It was really good stuff. And finally, the battle went on long enough and yet was interposed with character pieces. So it helped escalate the problem to the point where the battle felt like 
it wasn't the focus so much as the background, but it helped elevate the scene. It helped elevate the tension and the, and the stress and the mood of the scene, which really was a good job. And honestly, I really liked the design for the destroyer ship, you know, the, the, the Supreme ship, Mitchell, Mitchell's, I'll just call it Mitchell's ship. Um, let's go ahead and talk about, uh, oh, and I mentioned lighting. I mentioned lighting because you'd be surprised how easy it is to make ships in space look dumb or fake because you have improper lighting on them. And they did a really good job with the lighting in this one. So it actually did look like they were in space. So just definite props there. Um, they did a really good job as well with the music. It kept that overall epic feeling throughout the thing. It never went to Lord of the Rings height, but I think that's a good thing. That would have been overblowing it. In actuality, in some cases, the music helped sell the scene better than the, the lines did, if you know what I mean. But that is the nature of music in a movie, or in television for that matter. Music has always been one of the most powerful tools that exists in visual media. Some people tend to underestimate that. And I feel like the music really, really helped keep that, again, escalation theme going throughout. Uh, the camera work, of all the things I have to complain about this movie, the camera work is probably the biggest one. Uh, it was all hand cameras, of course it was, but it, it showed a lot. And in a lot of cases, that camera work was obviously being carried by a guy who was obviously shaking and obviously taking steps, and it, it just kind of took away from it just a little bit. I know, I know, there's no real getting around that. And I know that there are certain uh, techniques that can be used uh, recording-wise and directing-wise in order to try and get around that, which obviously Tim Russ didn't really know about because this is, what, his second directing job ever? I think it's actually a third or fourth, but anyways. Which uh, brings me to the directing uh, while I'm on the subject. Tim Russ kind of got flacked over on Voyager. He only directed one episode of Voyager. I don't even remember which one. I think I've already talked about it in my Voyager Ruminations because I remember bringing that up. And for those of you who don't know... That's kind of a weird thing for an actor to only get one stint at directing. Usually actors get five or ten or twenty, <laughs> depending on the circumstances, because it's 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 a whole contractual thing. I've talked about them in my Voyager Ruminations. Go watch my Voyager Ruminations. <laughs> Shameless self-plug. But the fact of the matter is Russ has a unique directing style, and I'm not going to call it amateur, but that, that was my first thought, was that he had an amateur style until I realized he was doing what he was doing on purpose to create a style. It is a very common mistake amongst early directors to try and do two big things. One, lots of big uh, moving close-ups in order to emphasize where there is none, and two, lots of cuts. However, as I watched this, and again, this is just my impression and my impersonation, but it... okay. I, I don't know how to explain how my an, an analysis mode works. I really don't. I look at something and what is being said, how it's being said, why it's being said, what's not being said, what's also being said in the background, and the things that are adjacent to what's being said is how I come to the conclusions that I do. That's my analysis mode. Every single aspect of the communication in a game or a movie or a book is what I look at, right? I got the very distinct impression that Russ gained experience throughout the course of this movie. A lot of the earlier scenes feel a lot more amateur in the way they're cut and directed than a lot of the later ones. It feels like he really started gaining ground on, it, on the style that I mentioned earlier. And early on, he was doing it because he didn't know how to get across that style. And later on, he started doing a lot better job of it. 
good example. Early on, he'd do big close-ups of this or this or this and cut away and cut away in order to get that thing. Later on, he'd do the same cuts, but rather than doing chopped conversations or cuts, he would do cuts between scenes, which would help show all the different actions that are all happening simultaneously. And he would still use the same types of close-ups, but he would do it with the one-off method, which, to, to explain very briefly, let's say you're focused on me, but the camera has this Wiimote. It's the first thing I had available. The camera has this Wiimote up here, and so you see this. Obviously, my camera is not properly focused for this, but the point is you see this, and then you see me back here, and the focus is on me, but you still have the close-up to emphasize the up-personal nature, so you can get a really good shot of my emotions that I'm expressing while you've got that centerpiece in the foreground. He does stuff like that, too. It's some good stuff. He also got better at the cross angle kind of thing. So overall, I think Tim Russ did a really good job uh, given his, in his incredible lack of directing experience. And I'm really excited to see what he does in Renegades. I, you know, I hate to re-mention that. That brings me to the writing. There's, there's no talking about the writing without simply saying it is a little ped pedantic at times. However, as I was watching the whole thing, I realized, again, two things. Number one, most of the writing was pedantic because it was dialogue writing. Now, I know you're going to look at me weird. Writing, as I've said before, really should be devised into two categories. There's, I am writing a story, and then there's, I am writing dialogue. And really, these two things are worlds apart. It is actually uh, more uncommon than you'd think to have a writer who can do both equally well. More often than not, this is one of the reasons why there are things like ghostwriters and why there are editors who work on certain aspects of things and why there's consultants to work on certain aspects of things because most of the time, one author or one writer cannot do all of the above you know, perfectly, right? So that being said, early on, a lot of the dialogue felt really forced and really poorly spaced, bad word choice. Uh, it It's a very common mistake to write dialogue that doesn't sound like dialogue. And later on, that problem basically went away. One of the other things I want to mention, though, and this is related to this, so I'm going to use this to segue, is it's interesting to me that all the scenes prior to the activation of the Guardian of, of Forever felt kind of, eh, with a couple of notable exceptions, I loved Ethan Phillips as the random janitor guy. That was actually great. Very human, very down-to-earth, loved it. Awesome job. I, I know it's a small role, but he deserves praise for it. And then, you know, Guardian of, Ga of Ga uh, Forever is activated, and then, I keep wanting to say Guardians of the Galaxy. The Guardians of the Galaxy are activated, and then things get awesome. And then he is Groot. But, um, and then it cuts to the other timeline, the alternate timeline, and then just literally out of nowhere, the quality in, in overall production just spikes. Writing is better. Acting's better. Directing's better. It gave the very strong impression, and I have since found out that this is true uh, after I finished watching this, that they filmed the first chunk of, you know, that whole first chunk over here basically as a test bed, and then some time passed, and they did some work, and then they filmed the rest. And you could tell they'd, they'd learned from their earlier stuff and gotten better at it pretty much across the board. Because as soon as it hits the alternate timeline, the movie really hits its own stride. So if you're watching this movie and you're just kind of like, eh, and you've tuned back into me wondering why it is I praised this thing, watch it up to that point and then, you know, give it a few more scenes and then tell me what you think. Now, I want to mention one other thing off camera. I'm trying to think of how to say this. 
there's well, there's actually two other things I want to touch off, off camera. Let's talk about let's talk about the first thing first. I mentioned it got really better once they got to the alternate timeline. There is another reason for that. It is harder to act as someone who is. I'm trying to think of a good word for this. Polite, simple, um, well-meaning. You know, it's easy to act casually happy. It's easy to act, you know, hey, I'm 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 with my friends, but, and it's also easier to act with. I am amongst my enemies, or I am an evil bastard, you know, because, in other words, the more you have to emote, the easier it is to act. The less you have to emote, the more difficult it becomes. So, it's obvious in some ways why those early scenes, even regardless of the experience problem, was ha was having issues. Because if you notice, even the experienced actors were having issues with that. It's because of the fact that acting like that is literally not only much more difficult, but basically kind of comes off as pedestrian, if you're doing it right, because you are being pedestrian. You are not emoting basically you are everyday business we're just doing this thing and you can't be a robot because you're with your friends you know but you're trying to be you know i don't even have words for it i i myself have had this problem uh, i once did uh, uh several voice acting bits for a video game don't bother looking it up you won't find it <laughs> uh, it doesn't even exist i actually went looking for it a few months ago it's gone but anyways i had several roles one of them was for a gentleman who talked like this, and it was very easy for me to talk like this because it's so exaggerated that I I could put so much more effort into it, and it came so much more smoothly then. And then there was the person who talked like this, and everything was about destroying and killing. I played a bad guy. Oh, I will destroy everything. And again, that was easier to act because I was so much emotive, right? But then I was supposed to talk like someone like this. And just nor I was literally told to just act like a normal guy. I was just an officer on the side of the good guys, and I was just supposed to talk. And, and just every time I heard my own lines, I just cringed. It, there was just nothing there. So like, yeah, she's a good ship. We will fly to this way. Engage for third. You know, it just sounded so bland. It's, that's that's the concept I'm talking about here. Um, second point, final point, off camera. I swear. I mentioned earlier that this thing shows prema, premise, or promise, promise. Now, one of the things that creators need to get used to is the fact that you suck when you first start. It's just true. Just go with it, okay? I know you want this big dream of you being some kind of prodigy or some kind of having natural talent. Let me clue you in, okay? Speaking of someone who's been around for many decades at this point... Let me, let me just give you some honest, real-life advice, okay? Natural talent does exist. It contributes about 1% to your overall success, and I am not exaggerating. All natural talent can do is give you an inclination or make training and practice easier. But Michael Jordan, who did have natural talent, practiced his ass off and worked himself to the bone to get as good as he was. And the same can be said for anyone else in any other condition who actually pushed themselves and excelled in writing and acting, in production and development, in, in creating and anything. Painting, doesn't matter what it is. Speed running, you know, doing ruminations. Wait, point is, you don't start off good. You start off bad. But having said that, I, one of the things I've been asked to do hundreds of times in my lifetime is, will you look at this thing I wrote? And I hate doing that, because inevitably, I'm going to be overall more negative than positive. 
because they want if if they want me to be honest with them, I always give them that template. You want to be on, totally honest with you, or just honest with you. And if I'm just honest, I'll tell them here's the things I thought were the worst, and otherwise I'll try to be positive. If they want me to be totally honest, I'll be like, look. However, in that total positivity, I've always had this phrase, and it is, it shows promise. It shows promise means it's clear that you want to make this work. It's clear that you ha have have enough inclination to keep trying in order to get better and I want to see more I do not have greater praise to give to a new creator than it shows promise and I mean that sincerely so let me just say that this movie as a whole very much shows promise it's bad in many ways but I wanted to see more as the as the movie went on now let's talk in character a little bit shall we First thing that I find amusing is right at the beginning with the whole thing with Ethan Phillips's character as the janitor or whatever. Very first thing I saw when I, I see this person show up and they use mental powers, I'm like, oh god, it's Gary Mitchell. Obviously, this time around, I knew it was not Mitchell, but I was reminded of that, and it's interesting because uh, one of the things that tends to be enjoyable amongst fans, I've noticed, is the desire to guess what's going on. And almost always those guesses are based on things that have already happened. Because one of the things a lot of fans, myself included, like to do, uh, and this is kind of a continuity thing, is tie in the threads of things. This is one of the reasons why so many things are called fanfic when they involve multiple different things from across the franchise. This is one of the reasons why Star Trek Online has been called fanfic because it ties into so many different plot threads and ideas and characters from across the entirety of Star Trek, from all the way from Enterprise up to Voyager, right? Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I mention it because this, you know, when you, it's rare to see that in actual production because of copyright issues. And by the way, yes, that is literally the reason why it's, why it's rare to see that in actual production, because in order to tie in old plot threads, those writers get a cut of the take, so to speak, and then sometimes they don't want to let you use their ideas at all, and sometimes MGM sues you, and blah, 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 blah. So... When you have a fan film like this or a fan work like this, those restrictions are removed, so you can tie in old things. Now, obviously, this can be done well or poorly. I only mention it because one of the things I loved doing about this when I very first watched this film was, was basically trying to guess how things tied up and in. It was nice to see uh, Stan again, for instance, the Vulcan, who is this actually playing the same character from the original series, and same actor, same character. And uh, it was really nice to see a lot of the little nods they did basically to tie in the universe visually without necessarily tying it in verbally. Obviously, Mitchell and Charlie are the two big things that are literally tied in from the original series, but everything else is just subtle little flavor stuff to flesh out the world, which is good. The grain of sand comment that Uhura gives at the beginning is one of the more common things in all of speculative fiction. I've said this before and I've said this again. What if? The idea of what if, the idea of, if, and, and in science fiction specifically, the idea of time travel, now what? You know, something has happened with regards to time travel, and how did things change? This is something that has been debated and considered and is so fascinating to the human mind because it effectively has infinite potential, especially because we don't actually know how that would work. And, God willing, we never will. I'm one of those people who thinks human beings shouldn't have time travel technology because, oh my god, <laughs> you know. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. 
But I mention this because it's no wonder why they decided to use that as a factor here. And indeed, it makes perfect sense that they couldn't have possibly gotten Shatner involved with this. As much as Shatner has mellowed out a lot uh, in the most recent years and would probably be willing to be a part of this, there's two big problems with that. Number one, Kirk was dead by the timeline they wanted to do it at. And two, even if he was willing to do this, he'd basically still command a fairly large salary and that would really eat into their budget. And before you think that's Shatner being greedy, he doesn't actually have a choice on that one. There's there's a whole reason the SAG kind of runs how um, how how uh, salaries and whatnot work uh, when it comes to acting in Hollywood. And certainly, you can work for you can sign it down to a certain amount, so you're working for what is effectively peanuts. A uh, good example: Leonard Nimoy did this in the episode Unification over on TNG. But that's still a decent chunk of money, so it's obvious to see why they didn't do that. Anyways, that being said, I liked how they used that disadvantage as an advantage and really took that idea and ran with it. A universe without Kirk. The funniest thing is, anybody, it's really obvious to see why a, a universe without Kirk would be horrible. I mean, if you think about it, how many times has that man done so many things, right? That being said... It's interesting because the single pivotal moment which really changed all of history was actually the pilot episode of Star Trek, where no man has gone before. I find that fascinating to think that that's all it took. It took up to Kirk's first real mission as captain of the Enterprise to utterly and traumatically change the universe for the worse because he wasn't there. <laughs> I mean, think about that. What would have happened if he, he'd lived through that mission but then died before the next mission? I mean, what horrible tragedy would have happened then, right? That being said, it's obvious why Kirk's absence would have altered this, the Star Trek universe so, so drastically and violently. It would be more easy to say, uh, there is no way it could have not, you know? It's interesting because, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Um... <laughs> The destruction of Vulcan was an interesting choice because it serves three purposes. By the way, it's worth noting this came out before Star Trek 2009. Just a little bit of historical fact. If you don't understand the significance of that, in Star Trek 2009, spoiler alert, Vulcan was destroyed. The thing is, in both cases, I believe it was the correct move. It is a deep, powerful, impacting attack that fundamentally changes the way the entire universe works and really hits to home in setting and for the fans. And in both cases, you try to commit to not undoing it. And obviously, in this case, it's a little different. They had to undo it because this was a time travel story. And time travel stories are inevitably about either repeating whatever already happened or undoing what already happened. And this was a clear case of undoing, given the nightmarish state of the galaxy. Um, that being said, they put proper gravitas into it. And I think of anything, the gentleman who played uh, Captain Harris, uh, Harriman? Yeah, Harriman, did the best job of that. You can see... Despite the fact that he's playing, you know, his evil counterpart, basically, there is still such hesitation and such uncertainty and such, I don't want to do this. Until finally he acquiesces and goes ahead and gives the order and destroys a planet. And the very thought of a planet-destroying weapon existing in Star Trek like that, well, it's kind of terrifying. And yes, I know there have been planet-destroying weapons in Star Trek. They're not that common, and most of them were destroyed. At least a few of those by Kirk, I just feel like pointing out. <laughs> the other thing I like, though, about the destruction of Vulcan, 
is it helps to emphasize just how messed up this new galaxy is. I've heard several people compare this to the Mirror Universe, um, which if you don't know what it is, I'm not even going to go into it. But honestly, I feel like this is not true because what we have in this universe is not an evil universe or a, or a dark reflection universe. The Mirror Universe isn't evil. I, I'm really taking that back. The Mirror Universe is all about personal... I matter more than everyone else. That could be considered a definition of evil, but it's not about the maliciousness. It's not about the venom. It's not about, I want to hurt you. It's about selfishness. Everyone in the mirror universe is selfish and self-interested, right? And that explains everything about the mirror universe, really. I'll, I plan to do a whole analysis of that at some point in the future. But getting to my point, this is not about that. This is a universe run by fear. Harriman himself is the best example of this. Forgive me for skipping ahead of my notes, but Zila and the way she works, that's the Orion slave girl that uh, Chase Masterson plays, wearing very little clothing, of course, because it's Chase Masterson. It's funny that she has aged so well, given how long it's been. Most of the other actors show their age. The gentleman who played Jake Sisko, I can't think of his name, forgive me, Siroc, I want to say, uh, also looks sick. I didn't even, I, at first I was like, huh? And then I was like, ah, eh, you know, moving along. Her character arc is actually one of the ones I like more about this thing. And I don't want to get too much into the concept of gender politics or the mirror universe or slave girls or anything like that. I don't want to get into that. I don't. What I do want to get into is the fact that she was willing to enslave herself to him out of fear. And he was willing to accept that out of fear. And the two, their mutual fear with regards to the fact that they both needed him to keep his position is what motivated them to do so many things they do throughout the course of this movie. And you can tell by the way they interact that that's how it works in general in this universe. This is the, the wonderful thing about this movie is it looks all the way back to what is effectively the first episode of Star Trek, you know, where no man has gone before, and says, why was it so important that Mitchell be destroyed? And this movie is the answer to that question. Because if he hadn't been, everything would have just been one cavalcade after another, a giant tidal wave of fear. And that is really the defining trait of this new universe and this new uh, order of galactic power, or whatever the hell they even called themselves. Mitchell rules through fear. His subordinates rule through fear. Their subordinates rule through fear, etc., right? But the thing that really makes this horrible is at every step of the line, debatably including Mitchell himself, they are all still afraid of whoever's above them. Mitchell himself, of course, it's debatable if he's actually afraid, but it's worth noting that he really does seem to have a genuine hatred of uh, Chekhov. I forget what he calls him. Forgive me. Carrick or something like that. And his self-interest and his willingness to sacrifice just for the sake of his own self is very evident and on display. And you can see the fact that even Mitchell still is afraid in his own way, sitting on the top of his corrupt empire. Now, forgive me for uh, flaunting my, my massive and incredible intellect here, uh, but fear is a bad thing, okay? <laughs> Especially a nonstop state of eternal fear, which is running basically an entire uh, organization which spans at least two quadrants. Fear's bad, okay? Now, I mention this because the 
the destruction of Vulcan thing really is where that's going. The whole he it's so clear Harriman didn't want to do this, and yet he had no choice. He was following orders. He was doing his duty. In his own words, as he tells later to Chekhov, it's so much easier when you don't have to see their faces. But that statement alone shows how much that even before his memories were restored, this is something that bothered him. But he had to do it. He was afraid of those who were above him. He was afraid for Zila, who it's clear he has honestly started to care about. It's also clear she honestly started to care about him. It would have been very easy and obvious for her to go ahead, if she, all she cared about was herself, was to go ahead and off him the moment she had the availability to do so, and go ahead and, and basically chain herself to the next person up in order to you know, move on with her, own, with her own career ambitions. But instead she stuck with him, and when she had the opportunity to shoot him, actively went out of her way not to. And then when it came down to fighting against their own crew in a hopeless situation to stay with him, she did so basically without hesitation. Only questioned it, but didn't actually not do it. She actually dies trying to save him. And hit her loss is what helps convince him to make the final sacrifice, too. I just mentioned, I'm, forgive me for spending all this time on this, but the, the actual relationship and interactions between Zila and Harriman is one of the more subtle things of the entire movie, and I think is one of the most well-done character points of the whole piece. So, Some interesting theories about the three main characters and why things happen the way they did. For those of you not aware, ugh, in, the, uh, in the episode... Uh, after Tomorrow? Is that the name? No, that's not the name of the episode. What's the name of that episode? The original Guardian of Forever episode. Being in proximity to the Guardian prevented Kirk and Spock uh, and the, the few there from being influenced by the change to the timeline, right? Okay, Sensemake. And that was Sensemake. Uh, it kind of had to be, otherwise there was no episode. What we see in this episode is they were not shielded from the timeline, and yet they were partially shielded from that. Now that made me think, because you can't just do something like that. You have to have a reason for it. Several hints are given throughout the movie, but they never state outright why it is that things happen the way they did. Because they were partially shielded. They still were affected by the timeline. They still have had their whole alternate lives, and yet they still had memories and impressions and thoughts from their previous lives, from the first timeline. And Charlie was able to awaken those thoughts and memories by simply unlocking them. That's one of the biggest hints and leads to my biggest theory, which I can grant to you now. Charlie himself, with his own godlike power, was the one who basically forced the situation so that they couldn't, you know, so that they were basically shoved out back into the timeline, but he couldn't do it perfectly. He can't override all the power of the Guardian of Forever, but he could do it enough so that they would still have to live the rest of the timeline and not be completely shielded from the changes he made. Otherwise... They'd just follow right after him and defeat him, and that'd be easy, right? He had to ensure they didn't interfere. Makes sense, right? The... <laughs> the other interesting thing about this, though, uh, is it is possible that this is due to the nature of the time shift. Remember, in that original episode with the Guardian of Forever... God, I can't think of the name of that episode. It's a good episode. Um, controversial, but good. The the galaxy was so fundamentally changed that there basically was no federation or anything. Like, Earth had basically wiped itself out and the galaxy had moved on. And so none of the people who were there were actually alive or functional or anyways in the alternate timeline. By contrast, 
when the changes were made by Charlie, all of them still were alive in the new timeline. So it's possible this is just a, a, a reflection of the type of change to the timeline that happened. Personally, I'd put my money on the first guess, but I thought I'd mention both. Mitchell. Let's talk about Gary Mitchell. Again, this whole movie is what would have happened, you know, why was it so important to stop Gary Mitchell? Gary, it's funny because at first I was assuming, when I very first watched this, I was assuming that Gary Mitchell just naturally gained his powers uh, as a result of who he was. It was so logical, though, when they actually showed that, you know, that, that wonderful thing. They don't even have to say anything. They could have just showed the image of a gravestone on the planet. That says Christopher Pike. For those of you not aware, in the original episode where No Man Has Gone Before, Pitt Mitchell made a gravestone with Kirk's name on it. Now, Kirk obviously beat Mitchell, ended up killing him, actually. And that's why Kirk kept going and Mitchell did not. But Pike, being unable to do that, that gravestone tells us everything. Right there. That's all you need to do for the info dump is Christopher Pike's name on the gravestone. Bam. And we realize Mitchell came back, superpowered, got on the Enterprise, and took over. And we do see that his powers are rather significant and have a decent amount of reach, too. To be able to sh reach to another ship is not insignificant. He's not exactly at what I'd call Q level or even at the, uh, I can't think of their names. They are the Doves uh, race, the people who forced the, the first Klingon treaty. I can't think of their names. Oh, my God. My, I can't think of anyone's names today. Anyways, he's not at their level, but he's certainly very, very strong, right? So that actually makes tons and tons of sense to me. It's also kind of sense-making because one of the... Th well, not to give away too much here, but one of the things that did end up defeating him was the fact that another person with superpowers was basically able to nullify his for long enough for him to be killed by Kirk. That's, that's a, a gross generalization of what happened, but that's the point, right? So it is logical that throughout the course of the last 40 years... No one has Mitchell has never encountered anyone without who else else who has power. So he's always been the one with the power. He can read minds. He can move things. It's logical that Mitchell would create this new empire out of Starfleet because of that. With himself as its new, I will be the god of the new world. I'll take a potato chip. Wait, they don't have potato chips in Star Trek. Well, I don't know what he's gonna do, but he's gonna eat it very dramatically. Two big things that that really gets into, though. Uh, three, really. The first is the obvious, and I already alluded at this. When Charlie ends up fighting him on the planet, it actually makes a lot of sense. Mitchell basically defeats Charlie for all intents and purposes, but that's not the important point, because Mitchell also defeated, I forget her name, back in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, but that disrupts his powers enough. I noticed immediately when he gets back on the ship, his eyes are no longer glowing. He obviously didn't notice it. It wasn't until he reached out to try to use his power that he realized it was gone. Now, it probably wasn't gone permanently. I, I would bet money, in fact, that given a few more minutes or hours or whatever, the power would have come back. But it was disrupted for just long enough for him to be basically completely screwed and consequently destroyed in a very awesome way, I feel like pointing out. And in so doing, saving the day, by the way. Another nice touch, and again, I mentioned the dialogue problems, but the overall writing is very solid in this thing because it would have been too easy to make the outcome of the battle irrelevant. You know, all they need to do is change the timeline, right? And yet the battle enables them to change the timeline. The battle enables the circumstances of the various ships to be in such a way so that when the when he and his destroyer try, goes to try and actually destroy the planet, which would have removed their ability to go through time and therefore stopped the plan, they were able to stop him from doing so. At the ultimate sacrifice, I might add. 
So good job tying that in. Very awesome job there. Second thing I want to talk about with the Gary Mitchell thing is... Well, it's actually two big things. I'm going to try to discuss these as brief as I can. You know me. I've said it before and I've said it again. Science is not linear. Okay, there's, you don't just get better in science. Okay, that's not what happens. Uh, not in fiction, not in real life. You don't just get more technologically advanced. What you do is you advance in certain fields, in certain ways. You get better at transit, you get better at communication, you get better at weapons, you get better at defense, you get better at uh, projection, you get better at re reception. There are so, 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 so many different fields that exist in technology. And I've mentioned this many times uh, because it's really important to understand certain disparities. If I may segue for a second, this is one of the reasons why the Iron Horde, a force from 24, I want to say, something like that, 20 plus years in the past, can pose such a threat to the modern age Azeroth. Because all of their technological focus is onto war. Destroying and destroying, and basically that's it. They don't even that high of a defense or, or otherwise transport thing. They just know how to crush things. And so when you have a unified force with that much military focus on it, that's going to be a threat to someone even who is basically more superior to you technologically and in Azeroth's case, magically. It's the same kind of thing here. It's why the order of whatever is so much of a threat. Because even though they have ridiculously outdated ships, which are literally years upon years, if not decades, out of date compared to everything else, that's an overall perspective. They're still better in combat. They're still better at fighting. Their weapons are still top-notch. They have a planet-destroying device that can fit on a Constitution class, for God's sakes. Think about that for a moment. And again, it makes perfect sense why Mitchell's empire would focus on that. Because that's what Mitchell himself cares about. He proclaims himself a god, even though his only real power is to influence and affect others in an offensive manner. So his own power reflects itself in the way he has pushed his empire to get better weapons and stronger weapons and more weapons and better weapons and stronger weapons and just keep this cycle going. He had to keep that rule through fear, after all. The second thing I want to discuss is the idea of the singular power theory. This is weird. Um, this is reflected in real life uh, through many examples in history. But the idea is, given enough time, any given particular region will inevitably have one massive power that basically dominates it. They may not literally control all the region, they may not be 100% in charge, they may not be, you know, whatever, but they are still dominating it. They are still the dominant power in that region, right? This actually is true with uh, on the animal level as well, and arguably on the cellular, but I really don't want to get too much into that. Point being, this has always been true in speculative fiction especially, because it follows naturally from our own natural progression. For example, who is the dominant power in the Delta Quadrant? Who is the dominant power in the, in the Gamma Quadrant? The fascinating thing about this is there is no dominant power in the Alpha and Beta Quadrants because of the unique and utterly bizarre quirk of nature that is the Federation. If not for the Federation, there would be one dominant power in the Alpha Beta Quadrant. And we see this in two other timelines now. In the mirror universe, there is the one dominant power, and when it finally falls, thanks to Spock, another dominant power takes over. One power. Keep that in mind. Um, but the uh, in this case, we have the the order of we're we're evil because Gary Mitchell. I can't think of their names. I'm so sorry. 
which rises to this dominant power and basically gets to the point where the only other force that can challenge them is not the Klingons or the Romulans who have been subsumed into this power, but rather rebels of the power itself, which is inevitable and also indicative of your classic Roman situation, a.k.a. it will fall, it will fall apart from within before it is conquered from without. Now... I mentioned this, and I just want to talk about this briefly, because this is fascinating. The Federation, the reason the Federation is such a wild card, uh, partially has to do with the way it was formed. But because the Federation has the technology, manpower, resources to be a dominant power, but actively works not to be. That's why other lesser powers and other major powers rose in the Alpha and Beta Quadrants, because literally the Federation let them. Otherwise, if they really pushed... I think most Star Trek fans would agree with me that the Federation, if they had been a more conquering, militaristic, otherwise expansionist power, they would have simply won. Enterprise notwithstanding. <laughs> and instead, they basically allowed other powers. And they didn't even do it necessarily deliberately or intentionally, but by, by cause of their actions, by the fact that they did not exterminate or crush or conquer or dominate everyone they encountered, other powers grew. The Romulans, the Klingons, the Cardassians, etc., etc., the Breen. So it's a fascinating concept because if you think about it, just about every alternate timeline or alternate concept thing throughout Star Trek has explored the same idea. And again, it's ex it's expanded within the main default universe itself with the uh, with the beta, or excuse me, with the gamma and the delta quadrants, right? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Let's keep going. I mentioned that there's uh, some good story structure to this thing. And uh, one of the best ways that that's done is everything ties in right at the end. The climactic last battles, plural, all really work great. There's the people trying to take the ship back. There's the people trying to take uh, figure out what's going on on the planet. There's Mitchell who's trying to go back after the guy who doesn't even know it. There's Charlie trying to get the guts up in order to go kill himself and his life in order to fix everything. You know, There's a lot of stories going on there. Charlie's own story is one we have to fully infer because we only see him at the beginning at the end. At the beginning, we see the child who was imprisoned, and at the end, we see the man who has grown out of 40 years of realizing the mistake he made. And 40 years not being willing or able to go back to that planet and go through that portal and knowing the only way to stop what happened would be to kill himself. Now, it's debatable if that is the only way to do it, admittedly. But it is very much presented in the movie that that is the only choice. That is how you stop this disaster from happening. Kill yourself. And it's not hard to understand why that's such a hard thing to do. Why it took so much encouragement and work for him to finally admit that that was the path for him. But we, we get so much character growth that we never actually see. We have to just assume because he does make that choice. 40 years, he spent, um, I think he spent 40 years the first time, imprisoned. And he finally breaks out and he has spent 40 years ranting and raging and hating Kirk for everything he did. I will kill Kirk no matter what. And then he spent 40 years seeing the consequence of that one act of anger. That kind of thing will make you grow up. And that kind of thing will make you willing to make that kind of sacrifice. And we get so much of that in just his few little scenes. Um, Uhura has probably the best line in this whole movie, in my opinion. Mitchell says, Morals? Morals are for men, not gods. And then Uhura's line in rejoinder is, And you are neither. I love that line. It is so perfect, and it so accurately emphasizes that not only Mitchell's character arc, but the overall emphasis of the whole thing. Mitchell was always just a raging, 
lunatic, basically, with delusions of grandeur. And I think to some extent or another he knew that, hence his own fear. Hence the fact that he would react so violently when, when pulled away from his own power base, you know? Final note. Actually, one other note I want to mention about Mitchell. I actually forget to mention this. Excuse me, this is a sidebar. I, this is just a really brief thing. One of the things that I like about the Mitchell thing, too, is it reminds me a lot of The Mule. If you don't know about The Mule, I'm not going to share. Basically, it's from the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. And it's a, it's a very similar setup of circumstances. One individual who happens to have psychic powers basically dominates everyone else around him because of his massive ego and megalomania, megalomania and all that other stuff. And... Um, it's funny because from someone like my perspective, I'll, I look at you and it's like, okay, you have power greater than me, but you don't actually have that much power. You're just a dude who can move stuff and look at stuff with your mind. That's still not that much. Um, but it's easy to see how someone like that could seize power, especially if they were careful. But I'm getting off topic. Chekhov and Harriman are on the bridge of the Conqueror, and neither one of them have to actually discuss their plans with each other. Several times, actually. They just look at each other and what they're doing, and they and there's no, I'm going to initiate Procedure 566, or I'm going to ram the ship, or I'm going to try... At no point in time do they actually do that. They just know what the other's doing, or they infer what the other's doing. And that's probably, in my opinion, the single best written scene, dialogue-wise, in the whole movie. It was so, so perfect that I just have to mention it again, because it deserves praise. It was spot on. That's the kind of stuff I love seeing in Star Trek, when the, when the, act, when the characters involved know what's going on so well that they don't have to communicate it to each other, and therefore to us, because they know what's going on. That horribly wonderful scene where he's looking at the corpse of Zila, and he just, I forget what he says, but he basically says, let's do it. Because he already knows what Chekhov has planned. And then it's like, okay, it's not going to work, but, th but we could do this. And, they, it, and then he just says, but we could do this. He doesn't say what. And the other guy says, well, you're crazy. And then we, the audience, get to view it as it happens rather than having it explained beforehand. That was really, really good writing and deserves huge praise. <sighs> Finally, the coda for this was a little bit cheesy, I'll be honest. But at the same time... While it was kind of weird seeing Uhura's happy ending thing and Chekhov getting booted upstairs and Harriman deciding to go to the council, it was logical, forgive me for the, for the statement, in order to see where these three principal characters went. It, really, they are the three main characters, Harriman, Uhura, and Chekhov. And it was logical to see where their lives had gone now that they had gone through this traumatic experience that they remembered, by the way. They remembered all of it, all of the other timeline, which is horrifying in its own right. So it makes a lot of sense that they would use that as this additional oomph to move forward in their own different ways. For example, note Uhura, after all this death and horrible destructionness, clings to life and love and, and the passion and the pursuit of happiness despite her age. And I don't mean that as a slight. I mean that she is unwilling to let age let her slow down in her pursuit of that life. She has years left, and she's going to enjoy them, and I liked that. Similarly... Harriman's desire to get in and start working on the politics makes perfect sense because remember what Harriman went through in the alternate universe. He saw firsthand what happens when the politicians, when the leaders, have that kind of power to tell you to do horrible, horrible things and what's going to happen as a result of, the, the, of those horrible things. Not only the, the casualties, the obvious victims, but the, the captains and the commanders and the people at the weapons cons, those are victims too in their own way. I'll be talking about this a lot when we come to Deep Space Nine. A evil empire is evil to more than just its oppressors. It's evil to its own citizens. 
and Herman wants to ensure that never happens to his Federation. Finally, Chekhov, someone who went through this horrible mess of disaster, fought as a freedom fighter who was willing to die just to kill one other man out of spiteful vengeance because of the loss of his family, becomes the head of Starfleet security. Yeah, that one actually makes perfect sense. I don't even feel like I need to explain that. But I do have to laugh that an, a character played by Walter Koenig uh, ended up becoming a head of a security department of a Earthbound organization. <clears throat> anyway, that's all I got. It's a great movie. I loved it. Can't wait for Renegades. I'll see you in the, in the next thing <laughs> that I'll be doing after this. Whatever. Live long and prosper. And here's to 40 more years.